the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly view on the story shaping shipping. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The great and the good of the oil sector are going to be descending upon London next week for the annual hydrocarbon bun fight that is IP week. So we thought it would be a good opportunity to take a look ahead at the trends and issues that are going to be coming under the spotlight. And who better to help us navigate our way through the murky politics of oil trades than Neil Atkinson, who's the head of oil markets division at the International Energy Agency, the IEA. Welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thank you for having me, Richard. Of course, um, Neil is a very esteemed analyst of oil things, oil these days, but uh, you, you cut your teeth at Lloyd's List, didn't you? Well, I cut my teeth reading Lloyd's List and using Lloyd's List. 35 years ago when the, the physical paper contained a lovely little table at the back of ship chartering and I used to physically slice it out with a pair of scissors and uh, enter shipping movements onto a ledger and then calculate uh, world scale rates and also uh, volumes of uh, crude oil exported from leading producers. And that was, in fact, it was longer than 35 years ago. It was in March 1979. Well, it's very good to have you back with us, albeit briefly. Now, we're heading into IP week. There's a a number of things on the agenda that are going to be keeping people entertained next week. Obviously, for our listeners, IMO 2020 is fairly um, foremost in their mind, I guess, with the uh, the looming sulfur regulations. I've seen you've been talking, you know, about a year ago about the fact that the industry and refineries are probably not doing enough to prepare for the new rules. Would you say that your mind has been changed at all in terms of the last 12 months, or do you still see a, a disruption coming to the market? When I first came to the IA at the beginning of 2016, we published quite a bit of research uh, at that point about the forthcoming changes, which uh, then were four years ahead. And we've been looking at it uh, regularly since. We're doing some work right now, which is uh, not completely finished as yet, but the main themes are becoming quite clear. And they are as follows. There's been quite an uptick in investment in scrubbers. We think that uh, by the beginning of 2020, ships carrying scrubbers will be using roughly six or 700,000 barrels a day of fuel oil. We also see on the other side of the, uh, of the balance from the refiners that there is likely to be availability of sufficient volumes of marine gas oil to largely cover the drop-off in the use of fuel oil. We think there could be a little deficit in the market, but the other point to make about gas oil demand in aggregate, that is both gas oil used on ships and gas oil used on land, is that for the on-land uses of gas oil, there is likely to be a lower rate of growth than we thought just a few years ago. So there is room for the refining industry to provide for its ongoing traditional land-based uses, but also find more fuel for the marine sector. So we think that... uh, There could well be a shortfall in the availability of MGO next year, but it's not likely to be dramatic. And we think that the industry should be able to take it in its stride. And indeed, the overall title of the research that we're doing on the whole subject, it's perhaps a little bit boring, but it's challenging but manageable. So I guess our view at the moment is is that the regulations are going to come in next year. They are not going to be as worrisome for the shipping and indeed the refining industry as we thought they might be. 
positive development. I mean, not everybody would necessarily agree with you on this side of the industry. There seems to be, you know, growing concern that the spread in terms of pricing is, you know, perhaps not going to be conducive to people investing. Scrubbers, yes, you know, we are seeing a, a, an uptick in terms of people taking it, but, you know, it's not where people thought it would be. I mean, it, it's still a, a bit of a fluid progression. What are the factors you're going to be looking at between here and, uh, and the start date? Well, there's obviously a lot can happen, and we've made certain assumptions, obviously, about, well, based on the research we've done into scrubber orders and the utilization of scrubbers on ships at the beginning of 2020, and we've made certain assumptions about non-compliance, and our feeling is, is that if our underlying assumptions do turn out to be accurate, then the, the fear is that there would be an almighty scramble, and therefore a significant uh, and damaging price increase, those fears are, are not likely to come to pass. However, I acknowledge that uh, in the course of our work, we look at the literature put out by other people, and there, and there are uh, analysts out there that think that the transformation will be rather more challenging. But at the moment, we don't think that it will be. And indeed, our colleagues in the US government, uh, the Energy Information Administration, they seem to take a line not dissimilar to ours, that this will be a challenging transformation, but it will be manageable. Okay. Well, that's certainly a little bit more optimistic than many were expecting. Let's take a, a little bit of a, a wider view. I mean, in terms of uh, oil market trends that we've been seeing recently, obviously sanctions have been fairly foremost in the, in the mind of uh, tanker owners, you know, initially with Iran, but now increasingly with Venezuela. Do you see the Venezuela situation being a, a mid to long term uh, disruption in the market or do you think that's going to resolve itself fairly soon? Well, the problem with the analysis of Venezuela is that it's fraught with coulds, mights, and maybes. And the problem with it is, is that you can construct scenarios which range from a total collapse of the industry in Venezuela, therefore nothing will be exported anywhere, to a relatively uh, swift and relatively peaceful transition from the old government to the new one. And then suddenly Pedavesa manages to get its act together, production starts to rise and exports start to flow, not least, of course, to the United States. Now, somewhere between those two cases is the reality. But unfortunately, the situation is so fluid, it's so dynamic, so difficult to read unless you're physically on the ground, that uh, it's hard to know exactly a position to take. And for people like us who are doing ongoing market analysis on a monthly basis and then from time to time looking five years out, we just take a base case that current levels of production will largely be maintained with a, with a small decrease as the year progresses. But quite honestly, we don't know. And I'm afraid that very few people can claim to have a real handle on it. But there's no doubt that the, the measures against the Venezuelan industry, which the U.S. government has taken, are intended to be effective and they will remain in place for as long as it takes. I think that much is clear. And indeed, we know that. Because as an intergovernmental organization, we have regular contacts with our member governments, which of course includes the United States. So we've heard from the horse's mouth, so to speak, that mm. the measures are serious. They're not a gesture, and they are intended to cause a change in Venezuela, if not literally a regime change, uh, but certainly a change in the policies of the government towards its own citizens. You know, from the shipping point of view, going up against those sanctions, uh, obviously there is a great tradition, I guess, within shipping of uh, taking risks. But uh, from what you're saying, you'd have to be either pretty brave or foolish to uh, go up at that, against that sort of sanction. I think so. And of course, of course also for shippers, uh, this argument applies uh, with respect to Iranian sanctions as well. You know, if shippers think that they can take Venezuelan crude 
instead of volumes that would normally go to the United States, they might want to take them, say, to India or to China or to other uh, customers of Venezuela. They may well find they can't do that because of their exposure to the U.S. financial system. And uh, shippers will obviously have to bear that in mind if they are thinking of continuing to be involved in Venezuelan exports. And of course, those arguments also apply to the Iranian, uh, the Iranian sanctions. What about the um, the OPEC situation? We've got a, another meeting coming up and there seems to be some fairly um, interesting uh, macro politics at play. Could you give us a sort of quick guide as to what we should be looking out for in terms of big driving forces over the next month or so? Well, the current uh, agreement between OPEC and non-OPEC producers, the Vienna Agreement, kicked in at the beginning of January. And uh, we've only got some fairly preliminary data so far, but it does appear that the output cuts are only really being implemented in any serious big time way by Saudi Arabia and UAE and Kuwait. Other countries, notably Iraq, uh, are actually producing far more than they should be producing under the terms of the deal. And other countries uh, are also not contributing. Russia, which is of course the other main player in the Vienna Agreement, has uh, so far cut its production by only very small volumes. And it seems to be taking advantage of the fact it has cut its production. Prices have risen considerably since the beginning of the year. So Russia is, if you like, in the money. So, so far, we've only seen a very limited compliance with the agreement. 85% compliance by the OPEC countries, but dominated by Saudi Arabia. And in the case of the non-OPEC contributors to the Vienna Agreement, their compliance is only 25%. So when they do meet again, whether it be in uh, literally a full ministerial meeting or in one of the uh, market monitoring committee meetings they have, then there'll doubtless be some questions between the various members asking uh, why they're not uh, pulling their weight. But having said that, there have been reductions in supply from the countries involved, forgetting who's pulling their weight and who isn't. And uh, if you uh, lay those alongside the continuing falls in production and exports from Iran due to sanctions, and of course the recent measures against Venezuela, we are seeing that uh, global output uh, is facing downward pressure uh, on one side, and the increases we see from the United States, which have more than offset it recently, have not so far dented the, the downward pressure. So with production going down from that group of countries, the, the heavy oil producing countries, demand growth being a little sluggish at the moment, oil prices have actually increased since the beginning of the year. Now, your readers will, will obviously know, because fuel costs are very important, that crude oil prices went up to as high as $86 a barrel in October. They fell back to just over $50 a barrel before the end of 2018. And this morning, uh, Thursday morning, uh, we saw that the Brent price was about $67 a barrel. So for the producers, all in all, things are not too bad. And in terms of next week, IP week, we're going to have some of our readers down there, but many won't. Um, so could you perhaps you know, give them a flavor of what's on the agenda next week that's going to be affecting shipping? Is there any opportunities or, or risks perhaps that they, they should be aware of in terms of these discussions? There'll be a lot of discussion next week, I'm sure, uh, amongst uh, the oil traders and, uh, and shippers that attend about the likely implications, particularly later in the year, of the IMO regulations coming in. If the picture is not quite as uh, 
comfortable as we think it's likely to be, we may well find reflected in the discussions over drinks next week that there are people that think prices are going to spike a lot higher, for example. So there may be quite a bit of anxiety to be picked up about that. Uh, people will be wondering about export volumes from the OPEC countries as the year progresses. But another interesting thing, which is not necessarily an immediate short-term trend, but people are beginning to talk about this uh, in terms of the growing availability of oil exports from the United States. And uh, we're doing some work at the moment on the medium-term outlook for the US. And uh, we see huge investments being made in pipeline capacity in the US leading to export terminals. And in the next few years, the potential for oil shipments, crude oil shipments from the United States to rise very considerably, that potentially is real and uh, is going to be an important factor in developing new trade patterns over the next few years. Wonderful. Neil Atkinson from the IEA, thank you very much for your time and thank you for joining the Lloyd's List podcast.